1: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Ben Epstein about his new book, The Only Constant is Change, Technology, Political Communication, and Innovation Over Time. This book was recently published by Oxford University Press. Ben's book, which traces communication changes and innovations in the United States from the time of the founding to the present, explores how and where innovative use of communication becomes viable for political actors. Ben connects a number of threads within the book, including a qualitative approach to communication studies that makes use of the American Political Development or APD framework as the structure to explore the disruptions in technology that allow for new forms of political communication operations to come forward and for political actors to choose to make use of these innovative forms of for communication. He also examines who makes the most use of new information and communication technology and how and where a new political communication order becomes embedded within our daily lives. This is a clearly structured book with some fascinating case studies to help us understand who may make the most uh, out of new communication approaches and where it may or may not make that much of a difference. But I will let Ben Epstein tell us a bit more about that at length as we discuss his book The Only Constant is Change. First though, I would like to welcome Ben Epstein to the new Books in Political Science podcast and Ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hello, Ben.
0: Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm a big, uh, big fan of the podcast, so it's a real honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So um, a little bit about myself, and then we can get into the the project. Um, I am an associate professor of political science at DePaul University in Chicago, and I teach uh, mainly American politics uh, with a focus on American political culture and especially um, political communication and media and politics, along with uh, along with a few other things, as we all do. But uh, and my research has uh, it really grew out of, uh, you know, an interest in how political communication changes over time, but but also uh, really how it connects to regular people and how they interact with politics. That's sort of how I started to think about this over time. So, uh, so my, uh, you know, evolution to try to get to this project was not something that uh, I saw coming. It sort of emerged out of my dissertation work at uh, the City University of New York Graduate Center, where I did my PhD work. Uh, and and when I arrived to start my work in graduate school, I I didn't plan on focusing on political communication. I, I wasn't really focused on media and politics. Uh, all of that emerged uh, as I was studying there. And it really grew out of an interest that I've always had in history. Uh, because before I was uh, a college professor before I was thinking about going to grad school, I was a high school history teacher and uh, and had a great time teaching history and I've always loved history. Uh, but it wasn't until I made it to uh, graduate school that I started to learn about, as you mentioned, American political development and the ways that American politics and American history have been studied in a way that really joined these two interests of mine. And um, and eventually I was able to connect all of those in through the, the, uh, the sort of the general concept of political communication and exploring the, the changes that have happened over time, which has been really exciting and and. Have developed this, uh, you know, in, into what became an exciting dissertation and, and thankfully uh, turned into a book that I'm really excited to share with people.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do a great job working in a lot of this historical background. And I'm going to ask you some more questions about that. Um, but I wanted you to explain a little bit to listeners, because you are very familiar with some of the terminology in the book, and what you mean by it And what communication scholars mean by it, but can you give the listeners who may not be as familiar an overview of what you mean by things like political communication order, or as you abbreviate them in the book PCOs?
0: <laughs> right. Uh, good question. A great place to start. Uh, the I'll, I'll take a sort of ten thousand foot view of where this is, and and start by sort of describing the book as essentially following this central. Um, recurring pattern that I've identified over time called the political communication cycle, what I sometimes abbreviate as the PCC. And the political communication cycle is something that I've identified as a recurring process that incorporates the technological, political, and behavioral aspects, the gears that work together to motivate political communication innovation. So really this book is about political communication innovation over time, how, why, and when those major changes in political communication happen. And so these abbreviations or these terms that I've used uh, or or that I've I've identified um, are, I hope, helpful because this book, I hope, serves for a number of different purposes. But one of those purposes is to try to help to provide some context and and allow really great ongoing research uh, in political communication changes and innovations, a a way to sort of connect to each other, to to connect the dots a little bit. And and I've identified this recurring uh, cycle over time that I, I think can provide some of that context. And you mentioned one of the key components of that, which is the political communication order. So the political communication cycle, which is this recurring process, is really made up of... Uh, shifting from a political communication order, which is a relatively stable, long period of of consistent methods that political organizations use communication tactics or uh, political actors use them, and then it eventually becomes disrupted through the combination of new technology and also uh, political motivations that can change, and, and then ultimately can lead to a political communication revolution, or what I abbreviate as a PCR. And so the political communication cycle, this recurring process, which serves as the guide for the entire book, is really a way to chart how technology and politics and uh, even external uh, events and behavioral processes um, come together to move from a relatively stable period of political communication where uh, political actors and their audiences sort of understand how things work and do things in more or less consistent ways and how that is then disrupted and, and the process of then changing to something that then again becomes stabilized with a new set of tools that are trying to do uh, essentially old things in new and better ways. So one of the overall sort of fundamental um, pieces that uh, I keep coming back to in this book and in related work is that political communication goals have always remained fairly constant. That campaigns, for instance... (laughs) The uh, goals don't change. You want to win. (laughs) Yeah, the goals don't change. Exactly. If you're running a campaign in 1820 and you're running a campaign in 20... 20, right? You're going, to be, you're going to be trying to do the same thing. You want to win, and you're going to be trying to reach voters to get them to turn out. So, so your goals are not going to change. What changes dramatically is the are the tactics and the strategies and the tools that you use to achieve those goals. So much of what I'm trying to accomplish in, and really explore in this book is how in during relatively short periods of time, but in the same recurring process, these Strategies have changed dramatically, and then we eventually get to a relatively stable period, a new sort of status quo, and that's the political communication order that reemerges uh, before eventually a new revolutionary process will begin.
1: Got it. Um, yeah, the the goals remain the same, <laughs> but the the way that people go about them, as you note, have these disruptions. Right. Um, and 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 I and I think this is a really Im- important and fascinating um, sort of component of your book with regard to exploring um, when these disruptions happened. And you also you know, sort of put them in the historical context, but in the political cycle and you, you frame this as, as I already mentioned and you mentioned, you know, through this um, APD American political development framework. Can you explain a little bit more about why the APD framework um, and sort of cycles of change was instrumental for your study?
0: Sure. Uh, As as I mentioned, uh, when I started uh, in graduate school, I I have to admit, I had never heard of American political development. I did not know it existed. I I, uh, was lucky to study under Andy Polsky, who is at Hunter uh, College and part of the CUNY system. And he is really an expert in American political development. And um, what I really learned from this is that what I've always how i 've always talked about history as being something that we can both learn from but also um, understand that pieces will you know elements will be um, similar to what we might see today and are very instructive today that American political development um, is uh, uh, largely looking at that process at looking at um, at politics over time and primarily in the American context, looking at. Institutions, how they uh, develop, how they change, how they uh, influence politics and political behavior, and and then generally trying to identify trends and potentially patterns over time, looking at how history can connect with today, uh, and and uh, and then ultimately um, how th- that can be used to get a greater sense of how. Uh, presidents, past, present, and potentially future might be connected to one another, um, how other institutions, or in the case of this book, how uh, political communication and political communication innovations uh, are actually fairly uh, consistent when viewed within a broader contextualized historical context. And and for me, this book is very uh, interdisciplinary and APD um, served as a, as a really foundational part of of that interdisciplinary process that tries to bring in communication studies and also uh, work from um, uh, diffusion of innovations research. And, uh, and then APD was a nice bridge to, to help uh, connect a lot of those pieces.
1: Yeah, and you also note sort of some of the threads from sociology and economics as well um, coming together um, into your study, um, and 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 it is a, a wonderfully interdisciplinary book, and I recommend it on that basis among other reasons. Um, but I want I want to now get you to to tell us a little bit about the central theses of the book, um, and and you talk about three claims that you're sort of going to make or that you make in the context of the book about the decline of the costs and thus the opportunity for adoption of new technological mechanisms about how a political actor with more resources of a number of kinds is more likely to innovate. And finally, why political challengers are more likely to innovate than those already in power or in elected office. Can you expand a bit on each of these and explain why they come together to sort of form the focal point for your study?
0: Sure. Uh, it's a really, really uh, nice way to, to get into some of the content here. I think uh, if I if I start by explaining the the actual cyclical process, then it, it helps to make uh, it clear why these three claims really make a lot of sense. The, the political communication cycle starts with a technological stage, and that technological stage really begins with an important new, uh, I, you know, information techno technology that emerges, whether it be uh, the radio or the internet or something tr- potentially transformative. As that new technology becomes widely used and and uh, becomes popular throughout society, it gains what I like to call uh, political viability. It, it potentially could be used for political communication in the way that we've we've already discussed towards these long-standing goals and if that's the case then possibly new or uh, new types of political organizations or actors could try to use these new tools to try to essentially do what they've always tried to do but do it in new and better ways and if they're successful which is a big if then that could that could potentially be copied in and, and, and imitated and eventually lead to a new status quo emerging. That's generally how this cycle works. And so in terms of these three claims that are central to the study, uh, the first one, as you said, being this cost claim that uh, the cost of new technologies, as the cost of new technologies decline, uh, then the potential for the incorporation into this political communication activity increases. That really has to do with barriers to early adoption of, of really any new technology or any new innovation. Um, and there are barriers uh, you know, of all different types, but one of the fundamental ones is the cost of new technology. And if we think uh, about how that connects to early uh, radios, for instance, or early black and white televisions uh, in the late 1940s and, and early 1950s, they were astronomically expensive when, when we compare them to what you could eventually get a television for just a a few years later. and And that makes it not only harder for individual consumers to buy them, but it it means that it's less likely for uh, for people to for political organizations to want to innovate, to try to use those new tools. And so as the cost declines, then it, it is obviously going to be used by more people. It's going to be more accessible. And then the potential use for politicians, uh, will increase. So that cost claim is really connected to the the, the naturally occurring uh, uh, sort of economic uh, realities of new new technologies as they emerge. Um, in terms of the second and third claims, which are, are really connected in some ways, they're really about the political actors themselves. So part of this book is about the new innovations, the technologies, but a lot of previous work focuses too much on just the technology and, and often almost talks about it as technological determinism that, oh, the the radio came about and the next thing was Franklin Roosevelt. And we were going to have, you know, these things, it, it all just happened because the radio changed everything. And now the internet came about, you know, came about and everything is going to change. And I don't believe that's the case. I think that the actors choose if and when and how they're going to make these big uh, leaps and, and and often risk a lot in making these big innovations. And so the second claim, talking about political actors with greater financial and technological resources as more likely to innovate earlier than others, is really important because it, it talks about not who might want to innovate, but who could potentially innovate earlier. And I, I talked about, talk about it in terms of a, a, an idea that I, I take from Diffusion of Innovation Scholarship called innovativeness, the essentially the measure of how likely you are to innovate earlier or later. And we can all think about for ourselves when we first uh, got you know, an iphone first got in our, first, <laughs> our iphone or you know I'm thinking of when when I was in uh in college my my parents I loved them to death, but they waited until I went to college before they got cable television. And so I was so all of my friends had cable, and my sister, who's younger than me and is wonderful, she was able to enjoy cable uh, at home when I, you know. But after I went to college, and I was waiting for them to innovate, and they had their reasons why they wanted to wait and be one of the last people on <laughs> earth to get cable TV. <laughs> Was, that was their uh, you know their choice I know about why and when I got my first cell phone and and I talk about that a little bit in the book and for me that was uh, connected to 9/11 in a you know interesting way um, but but why we innovate individually is motivated in much the same way that political organizations and political actors innovate and so if you want to innovate that's one thing if you have the resources whether they're financial or technological, to actually make those leaps you 're more likely to do it earlier than later uh, for political actors and and finally, the third claim that political challengers or outsiders are more likely to innovate um, earlier than others is just based on the political risks involved if you're If you are a political actor currently in power right if you're a, a candidate if you're an incumbent for instance, you are less likely to want to do a major innovation in how you do things because you want to keep things more or less the way they are. You might incrementally change how you run your campaign or how you communicate to certain potential voters. But if you're an outside candidate, if you are um, someone with less political political capital already, you have less to risk. Uh, You're more likely to take a big uh, gamble and innovate earlier than others, especially if you have the resources to do so. So these claims can sort of connect to one another um, and help to give a clear idea of when new technologies might be viable for, uh, for, you know, c- successful innovation and also when, uh, actors or organizations might actually be able to take advantage of those opportunities and try to innovate themselves.
1: That's, I mean, that's so incredibly helpful to think about the, the three claims and how they're connected to one another. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, in this context and, and given the, you know, sort of the research in the book, um, can you point Listeners a bit towards some of the political communication revolutions that have transpired in the United States. I mean, I think we can think about some of them, obviously, this radio and FDR and the fireside chats and so forth. Um, But your book goes into a lot of historical detail um and I would love for you to provide just a couple of examples of you know where you see some of these interesting components coming together
0: sure uh, yeah like yeah, i I think I've mentioned several times i just I just love history and one of the most fun. Uh, parts of writing this book and, and and doing this project over many years was was diving into the these you know really interesting historical uh you know narratives and and examples of things that i had I had never heard of before um and and when it came together and when I connected it to this political communication cycle overall um, i I identified four political communication orders, those long stable periods that we 've talked about, and three uh intervening disruptive political communication revolutions. And so the the first political communication order what I call the elite political communication order really existed from the colonial era all the way through the 1830s or so and that period was really dominated by obviously print technology there was no radio there was you know no no facebook <laughs> and and so uh the print that print era was primarily uh created by and largely for political and business elites. so you had uh you know relatively small readership and, and a growing number of newspapers but um, but that really was was fairly consistent over time where you had this this very slowly emerging printing process, partly because it was. So expensive and difficult to actually make newspapers, which I go into in, in great detail in in, uh, in the second chapter, um, but also because the the actual demand for them was was limited, the people who could pay for them and, and actually who could read them and potentially use them um, one of the well the first major revolutions the the political communication cycles that that happens, really emerges in the early decades of the nineteenth century, and by the eighteen 20s and 1830s really starts to change into the second political communication order, what I call the mass uh, political communication order. And that's when we really see the first emergence of a mass media in this country. And it's not because the medium changes, because we're still talking about a print era, but we're talking about a print era that is suddenly accessible to almost everyone, regardless of class. And that's a major change And it changes because uh, of a number of different pieces. It changes first because uh, newspapers are cheaper to produce. Uh, the, The technology in printing, the technology in paper making comes down dramatically. But also the demand for them increases um, for a couple of reasons. One, you just have an increase in literacy during that time. You have greater education. You have more people that can read. Also, you have um, greater political opportunities because uh, the suffrage rights are coming away. You have universal male suffrage um, by the um, 1820s, just about everywhere. And so um, there are more people that are interested in political information, and therefore political information is going to be written for more of the general audience, um, and and you um, you know you also see some infrastructure changes that help newspapers disseminate very quickly, um, and and all of that comes together to radically redefine uh, the not only the political makeup of the country but how we can communicate about that. And then you layer in some business changes that happen, especially with the penny press emerging in eighteen thirty three, uh, where suddenly anyone can go on the street corner and buy a newspaper for a penny, uh, as it would. You know, as it obviously is aptly called the penny press, as opposed to what previously um, you could only get through a subscription. And that subscription was too expensive for most people to have on a regular basis. And so suddenly you have this ability to use this medium that isn't new in a totally new and different way um, that that redefines how newspapers work. Who they're written for what sort of information they're going to be interested in um, and and all this is emerging as political parties are reforming how the process works and, uh, and and it's all happening in a relatively concentrated time that forever it will change how you know how the how political communication works in 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 this country and and that then is more or less the order that is in place for nearly a hundred years until the radio displaces that uh, the radio obviously is a is you know, an incredibly important uh, technological innovation. It brings in what I call the broadcast political communication order. And uh, while some people uh, don't necessarily agree with me, I, I link radio and television, even though television was obviously incredibly important on its own for many, many reasons. They together redefine the, the relationship that sources of political communication and audiences of political communication have. They, they make Political communication much more personal, much more immediate, um, and 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 there's more of a an emotional connection between watching a speech or, or uh, hearing uh, FDR's fireside chats as opposed to uh, reading uh, George Washington's farewell address, for instance. And so it doesn't feel the same way. And and, and that might be obvious, but um, but the process of trying to use the radio for politics, and usually using it poorly. Uh, And then eventually, over several years, actually over a decade of sort of trying things out, eventually, it becomes a mainstay in American politics and, and becomes really organized by new regulations, by new tools, and, um, and becomes this stable order that the television was then incorporated into, until you get to really the 1990s, until the internet Really, radically um, reshapes or starts to reshape how political communication can work, and, and um, obviously uh, not to fast forward, but uh, a few things have changed since 19, the mid the mid nineteen nineties in terms of how we how we get and generate and curate and, and share political information, and and uh, and and we're in the midst of that political communication cycle right now. So that's uh, that's a, a big part of it.
1: So I would I mean I guess we're still in the revolution perhaps.
0: Yeah, well that's a that's a great question. I um n- no, I think is the short answer because I think um the political communication cycle charts this process from stable political communication order through a cycle of revolution to another stable order. And there are three phases the technolo- technological phase uh, the second phase, which is, I think, the most important called political choice, which is all about the behavioral choices of when and how and if political organizations make their innovations. And then the final stage is what I call stabilization. And stabilization is the process of these radical permanent changes becoming stabilized through both changes in norms, how political actors and how political audiences use these tools but also in new regulations and new um, institutions, and I think that if we look at that cycle and we look at what's happened over the last twenty years, we're clearly in that third phase. We're we're past any experimental part. The internet definitely helps uh, impact politics. I don't think anyone were anyone's cons- you know, and no pol- no political organizations are wondering should I should I be on social media, (laughs) right? It's not a a question. Not a question. Not a question. And so um, to use uh, Rasmus uh, Rasmus Kleist Nielsen's work, um, he talks about the the mundane internet tools. And and some of these tools that once were really exciting and really new and were groundbreaking like email are no longer interesting, right? They're they're things that everyone uses. They're mundane. But the fact that they're mundane is exactly why they're so powerful, because they're used by all kinds of people all the time without even thinking about them. And no political campaign, no political organization would think about some sort of communication outreach strategy that doesn't include them. So we're we're past the the early trials. We're even past the the copying of things that work. We're in the the, the final third phase of this process where we're, we're starting to stabilize what this, new, this recent revolutionary cycle was, and, and that will largely dictate, I think, where we're going to be going over the next 5, 10, maybe even 20 years down the road. And, and regulatory processes and new norms of how organizations work and how the public consumers of political information um, interact with and use these new tools, um, those will largely dictate, I think, how our current cycle be, really becomes stabilized.
1: Yeah, that, make, that certainly makes a lot of sense, given all the discussions about how to regulate Twitter and Facebook and social media and so forth at the moment Yeah, um, around electioneering and communi- communication, as you note. Um, so I wanted to ask another question that sort of takes you through a little bit of the history that you do such a great job with in the book. And you, this, this study only applies to the United States. Um, and your work on the political and cyclical history of technological innovation um, as it applies to politics is really interesting and I think useful for other places. But can you explain a bit about why this is possible? possibly unique for or in the United States at this moment, but perhaps may not be
0: forever? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really useful question. I appreciate that. I I write in the introduction that um, in – in one way, this book is really broad, and it's it paints in very broad strokes, and that's the the sort of breadth of history that I'm trying to cover, right? Over 300 years of, of history. One way that the book is a little bit more narrow, as you described, is in geography, right? It's only going to be focused on the American case, uh, but I, I describe that I I don't believe in any way that the the political communication cycle is an American phenomenon. I think that that how the technological changes were applied and when they became more widespread in the United States was different than the timing and the, and the rate of diffusion that, um, some of these technologies might have come into play in other parts of the world. We know that, um, the internet for instance, or, uh, you know, uh, Cell phones or or, or recent um, technologies diffuse differently in different places, um, and that's always been the case. So I think that the American context of how the political communication uh, cycle can be applied is unique in terms of when these disruptive periods were and and when these relatively stable periods were. But I, at the same time, I believe that this political communication cycle I hope will be a really useful context and, and useful um, set of. Of tools and, and some terminology that can be applied all over the world. And so I, I think that, you know, how, you know, if we look at, um, you know, South Korea, one of the most technologically advanced countries in in, in the world, well, how, uh, how quickly new technology is adapted by the majority of people in South Korea uh, will change how that can be used by political organizations in that country. And so the process is the same, but the actual, uh, but the actual step in the actual orders and the actual process uh, will probably be different. But I think that the the general pieces fit together in the same way. They're th- they're the same gears that are that are working. Some countries are going to be more authoritarian. Some regions within nations could be, um, you know, could work very differently. We know that adoption of radios in the United States were very different in rural America than urban America. Um, those all of those are important nuances and really important distinctions. And there are great studies on all of these small pieces. What I, what I haven't seen very much of and what I hope the book will help um, to provide is, is a way to connect some of those really great studies um, in some, you know, with some, some helpful historical context.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see some of these applied to places like Israel, which also has a, you know, a history of innovation, pr- particularly technological innovation, um, or India, um, you know, which are sort of leapfrogging over aspects of technolo- technological innovation, um, and how it becomes, how some of these communication strategies become more the norm in other places as well. Um And I wanted to ask you, towards the end of the book, you integrate an interesting comparative case study. So you've gone along in the book, and it's really fascinating looking at how political actors, um, politicians, elected officials make use of um, communication technology, where some of the innovation happens, how they capitalize on it. But then, towards the end, you examine um, interest groups you know you you have i think four interest groups that you that you look at that are are sort of also working with these technological innovations in a slightly different way, because they're doing communication narratives, but they're doing it somewhat differently. So can you tell us a little bit about this particular comparative case study, obviously, it's in the United States. Um, But the difference in terms of the political actors and interest groups versus those running for elected office?
0: Sure. Uh, Yeah, I have three uh, chapters that are focus on different case studies. One on campaigns, as you mentioned, there's another chapter that focuses on social movements and, and sort of marginalized groups over time. And then there's, uh, there's the, the final case study is, as you said, on interest groups and the interest group chapter is, is probably the most, Ill- most, um, helpful way to illustrate how, how different political communication, um, or how different organizations, I should say, are trying to do similar things, but through different goals. And so I mentioned earlier that uh, political communication goals remain fairly consistent over time, but the strategies that are used to achieve those goals change. I think that that interest groups are the best example of that because one, one thing that is very different about interest groups is who their political communication targets are. Who are they trying to reach? Campaigns are trying to reach as many people as possible, they want to get to potential voters. They want voters to potentially turn out and and help them win elections. Social movements are are trying to do similar things, trying to reach a larger audience because uh, ultimately the audience that they already are involved with are are not enough to change their their political opportunities. But interest groups are playing insider politics, right? Interest groups have they already have relationships with uh, policymakers and and power brokers at At local and state and national and national level. So interest groups are not necessarily trying to reach broad audiences in new and better ways. They might be incentivized to reach their target power holding audiences in new and different ways, but you're going to use different tools to reach a broad audience as opposed to a more narrowly targeted audience. And so interest groups were just simply had less of an incentive to innovate how they use communication tools because while they wanted to get supporters, they wanted to get members. Ultimately, who they were trying to influence most were the people that uh, that they already had connections to, and uh, and so their sort of innovation, communi- or, uh, their information communications had to do with outreach and trying to improve and increase their membership. They they became more political. I, I mentioned I speak specifically of the NRA. Um, and uh, and also this the Sierra Club that that both became more political over time, but but ultimately until the internet and until this really dramatic change in the democratizing, the democratizing potential of how the internet can reshape how interest groups work in the move on uh, era and and post move on uh, using the move on model of uh, dave carp 's work um, we we really don 't see major changes so so interest groups that have been around for the entirety of the, of American political history um, did not innovate in near the same way at near the same rate because they didn 't have to until until very recently and and then we start to see some some major changes and uh, some of the legacy uh, interest groups are trying to update um, how they do things. And and there are a lot of newer interest groups that are organizing, um, essentially following these relatively new uh, web-based uh, models that are less bureaucratic and more um, horizontal in structure. And so there's uh, – but, but ultimately, it's because the goals, the political communication goals of interest groups are very different from – the goals of those other organizations, we see the process of innovation happening over time in a very different way.
1: And that brings me to my next question, um, which is, why is so much of this understanding of previous revolutionary periods, if we can use that term, um, important to us now? What What do we learn about um, our current political dynamic and the future (laughs) um, political dynamics from our understanding of these disruptions within political communication?
0: Yeah, that's. That is the question that 94% of all of my high school history students all ask me, right? Why do we? Why should we learn this stuff, right? Why, why should we focus on history and what does it mean for us today and possibly tomorrow? And if we can't answer that question, then I don't think we're doing a great job with this stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that one of the major uh, benefits of this book is that it helps us understand where we are in a process that isn't always in constant change. It's not we are not even though it feels like we are we are living in an era of of constant innovation and and new changes in how we get information and how people communicate. It feels like it, it it's it's an all the time never ending process. It's it's actually not. And especially when we focus on political communication because political communication is different is a different subset than broader social communication. There are very clear uh, processes and and um, uh, you know and eras like we've talked about of major change and then relative stability. Not that nothing changes, but relative stability compared to those revolutionary periods. And as we mentioned earlier, right now, if we look throughout all of American political communication history, and we see how these things have changed and when and how um, actors and organizations and institutions mm-hmm. and laws how all these things have changed over time and more or less, then we start to see where we are now. And where we are now is in the later stages of this revolutionary cycle, which suggests that the decisions that we make over the next few years in terms of net neutrality, in terms of uh, mergers and acquisitions of major uh, telecommunication companies, the uh, power that Google and Facebook and Apple have in self-regulating or whether the FCC or uh, Congress takes control of where that goes, Uh, ultimately those decisions are really what will set the stage for a very stable era of political communication. That doesn't mean that we won't have new innovations. That there won't be new um, Apple products that change people's lives, and that uh, you know, and that that we might be looking at holograms in in a few years, or or, or virtual reality, uh, you know, used all the time. All these things will potentially happen, but politicians and political organizations like stability. And so, what they often will build in is a way that we will consistently use certain tools, and we've already seen that. We we look at just the changes over the last few electoral cycles, and and campaigns are usually a great way to look at these changes over time because they're so regular. If you look at the social media um, platforms that were used in two thousand and eight and twenty twelve, and then in twenty sixteen, even though the campaigns were very different, right? Obama's campaign and Romney's campaign, and fast forwarding to um, Clinton and. Trump and, and Sanders even in 2016, the the campaigns felt very different. But the tools that were used went from a, a number of different tools that were being used in 2008 to the exact same tools used in, in similar ways in 2016. It wasn't that the content was the same. It wasn't that Clinton's messages were the same as Trump's, obviously. But they actually were using the same tools in more or less the same ways. And that form of stabilization is, I think, a good example of how, um, of, of how the norms of political communication change um, become more stable over time. And, and if we know that, then we know how important the era that we're living in right now is, because the decisions that either we make or that political organizations make or that Congress makes will help really set the tone for, I, I think, the reality that we'll be living in uh, for potentially decades to come.
1: So that Mark Zuckerberg's um, sort of testimony in front of the Senate a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was um, is important to think about in terms of what Mark Zuckerberg understands about um, media and communication and what many of the older members of the Senate understand about media and communication.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it was, am- it was amazing listening to some of the older members of the Senate saying, so how, how does Facebook work again? And yeah, it was exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: Um, so this is, this is a great book to read from a number of different perspectives, political science and economics and business innovation. Um, so I want to know, Ben, what are you working on now?
0: Uh, that's a, yeah. So you, when you spend eight years working on a book project, then then you have to think, well, what what comes next? And there's, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of really exciting projects that I'm a part of. Um, I've been working on a, a long project with uh, a couple of great colleagues, uh, Jennifer Connolly and Latisha Bodie, on uh, looking at um, e-government and and looking at how local governments um, use different tools differently uh, to interact with uh, uh, to interact with their their constituents. Um, that's been really exciting. I'm doing a, a lot of work on how email was used in 2016 and looking forward, uh, really growing out of one of the chapters uh, of this book, uh, chapter six, that looked at social movements and marginalized groups, which is really where my interest originated and is always, is always focused, which is on, on uh, groups that are politically marginalized. And so one thing that I'm really starting to dive into is how, how marginalized groups over time have tried to use innovative techniques to try to change um, their political fortunes, and and what can work, and what often does not work, and, and why, and and I think that um, looking at how uh, at how these different groups uh, try to try to change the way that um, to use Schott-Schneider's terminology, how they change the the scope of conflict, um, that's that's been a that, that's a real interesting um, puzzle that I'm excited to work on moving forward.
1: So when you finish that that book, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it?
0: It would be my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Great. So I want to know and the listeners want to know where they can buy. The only constant is change, technology, political communication, and innovation over time. I know it's published by Oxford University Press, and we all know there are various places where we can buy books on the internet. Is there any place else that one might want to pick up a copy of your
0: book? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, Always a huge fan of my local bookstores and uh, relatively close to my house in Chicago is a great bookstore called The Bookseller in Lincoln Square. Um, it's a fantastic place. It serves our community really well. And that, if you are in Chicago, would be a great place to, uh, to look for the book.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Ben Epstein. It's great to talk to you about this great book about constancy and change in technology.
0: Thanks so much, Lily. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure.